In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of, the one, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. So if you search uh, online, you can find this interview, but it's an interview by, uh, of Bono, who's the lead singer of U2 and a very famous rock star. And in 2013, Bono was interviewed by some, uh, I can't remember the publication, so some sort of NPR-ish sort of um, media outlet. And in the interview, you can... Uh, see that the interview goes spiritual pretty early on. And the interviewer asks Bono if he ever prays. And Bono says, yes, I pray. And the interviewer says, when you pray, who is it that you pray to? And Bono says, Jesus. And the interviewer says, do you believe that Jesus was divine then? To which Bono replies, yes. And then Bono goes on to say that if you read the Gospels, one of which is John, and you see what the Gospels say about Jesus and the things that Jesus claims for himself, then Bono says to this interviewer, then it's unfair to say that Jesus is just like a great philosopher or a great person or a really good moral example or teacher. Bono says, he's either God or, and then the interviewer cuts him off a little bit rudely. And he says, I know, I know, I know. He's either God or not. I get it. And then Bono interrupts the interviewer and says, no, no, that's not what I was going to say. I was going to say he's either God or he's nuts. Like Charles Manson level nuts. Like not just a rock star messianic complex, Bono says, but he has got a crazy person complex if he says the things he says in the gospel but isn't actually divine. And the interviewer is sort of dumbfounded for a moment. And then the interview picks up and moves in a different direction. I find that interview interesting, not just because I like you too, but because Bono, Bono gets it. He gets that the Christian faith at the end of the day really is about what you think of Jesus of Nazareth. Christians can disagree about all manner of secondary issues, but the main thing that Christians have always proclaimed and believed is that Jesus is who he says he is in the scriptures. That is the purpose of John's gospel. The fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, was written to show people who Jesus really is. 
and to show people why Jesus really came. John is focused on the self-disclosure of God, the self-disclosure of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to study John in the coming months together, and we're going to see again and again who Jesus is according to the scriptures themselves, according to John. So before we get into chapter one, let me tell you a few things by way of introduction about this book. John is the last book written of the four gospels. He probably wrote this book between A.D. 80 and 85. He was the youngest of the 12 disciples. When you read the gospel narrative, John is probably even a teenage young man. And he writes this book very late because he lived later than all of the other apostles. And John's writing this book primarily to first century Jews, of which he was one, to persuade them that Jesus is the Christ. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, if you're familiar with the four Gospels, then you will perhaps know that John is very, very different from what we call the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic is a word, comes from two Greek words, soon, with, and optics, eyes. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all see from a similar perspective, but John is very different. 90% of what you find in the Gospel of John is unique to John. You don't see it in the other three Gospels. So John has a different purpose in writing to some degree, and stylistically, his gospel is very different from the other three as well. John's purpose is very clear. He tells us already here in chapter 1, but especially at the very end of the gospel, in chapter 20, verse 31, John says, these are written, these words that I've written, they're written so that you may believe, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote what he had seen and experienced in his journeys with and experience with this man, Jesus. And so our purpose in studying John in the coming months is also that we might see and believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Now this morning we're going to look at the first 18 verses that Will read. Traditionally, these verses are called the prologue. The prologue of John introduces us to all of the major themes of the rest of the book. You can think of it like an overture. If you're familiar with operas, which I'm not, by the way, I said to read about this. Apparently, this is true. In an opera, the overture, the beginning of the musical piece, this is also true in symphonies, gives you a hint or it whets your appetite for everything that's coming later on. And that's exactly what we see here in the prologue. John lays out themes that we're going to be thinking about and discussing and dialoguing about together in the coming months already here in these first 18 verses. And so given that introductory material, let's take a few minutes this morning and think together about John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Here's the main idea. The word came into the world to make God known. That's what John wants to communicate. That's what God actually writing, inspiring John to write this, wants to communicate to you and to me this morning. The word came into the world to make God known. Very simple. We're going to divide that statement into three parts and look at it together this morning. So first, let's look at this idea of the word. The word. Look with me at the beginning of the gospel. In the beginning was the word. That's a unique way to start a gospel. Mark, for example, begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then tells us the historical narrative of Jesus entering into his public ministry. He starts at the beginning of Jesus's life. But John says, 
I'm going to one-up you, Mark. He goes much further back. He says, in the beginning, and that immediately makes a Jewish person think of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. John goes back, you see, to the beginning of everything, to before the beginning of everything. He goes back to pre-Genesis 1.1, and he says that this Word was in existence at the very beginning. Why does he use this term, Word? What does that mean? Well, remember, John was initially writing, most likely, to Jewish readers. And a Jewish first century reader of John's gospel was going to see that term, word, and immediately think of God's powerful disclosure of himself. When the Old Testament uses that term, for example, in Psalm 33, which says, "...by the word of the Lord the heavens were made." It's referring to God's creative power. And so what John means when he uses that term word is God's powerful self-expression. The word is God's powerful self-expression. And yet John says that this word is not a something. This word is a someone. God's powerful self-expression is, in these first few verses, personified. John says the word was with God and the word was God, verse 1. So the word, this self-expression, this revelation of God is God and yet somehow is also distinct from God as well. He was God and at the same time he was with God. John's not intending to confuse us in verse 1, chapter 1. But what he's intending to do is lay out some of the foundational truths of the true God. And part of what John is saying here is that God is a trinity. This is one of the most important verses in the Bible to think about the doctrine of the trinity with. He means that the word, Jesus Christ, is divine. He is equal to God in substance and power. The word was God. Yet, he is also in some way distinct from God. The Word was God and the Word was with God. So within the divine essence that is God, there is a multiplicity. There is a distinction or a differentiation. There is unity in God, but within God's oneness, within God's unity, there is community. The way the church has formed this truth theologically is to say that the one God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's what John is laying out for us here. This word, the personification of God's power, the personification of God's self-expression is himself God. He also is the creator. Look in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In Genesis 1.1, we read, In the beginning the Lord created the heavens and the earth. And in John 1, we see that the way that God created all things is through this word, is through the Son, He's so connected with God, with the God of the Old Testament, that their actions are equivalent. John says that the Word is God. The Word made everything that exists. And anything that exists, 
was made by him. And then in verse 4, he says that he is life and the light of men. Those are two universal religious ideas, life and light. John's describing the excellencies of the word here. He is self-existent in his life. The word is not dependent upon anything else for his own existence. And he gives life and knowledge, symbolized in that term, light, to the entire universe, to each one of us. So the word exists independently of all else. He has no need of anything or anyone to give or sustain his own life. The word was with God. The word was God. All things were made through the word. The word is life. The word is light. And that's just in verses 1 through 4. John drops a bombshell right out of the gates here on his readers. If the purpose of this book is to tell us who Jesus really is, then it's hard for him to be much clearer at the very beginning. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is God. That's what he's saying. Jesus has always existed. Jesus is equal with God. Jesus made everything, including you and me. Jesus gives us life. Jesus is the light. That is John's starting point you see. And so what does that mean for you? Well, it means a lot, but let me just say this for now. If you want to understand with intellectual honesty, at the very least, if you want to understand and know the real Jesus, you have to presuppose what John presupposes. And that is, he is divine. He is God. That's what Bono was getting at in that interview. And I think he was right. You can't really approach him or understand him unless you presuppose what he tells us about himself and what John tells us here, that Jesus is God. Do you see him in that way? It's worth thinking about. Don't mistake him for being simply a good teacher or a nice man or a spiritual guide, because that's not how the New Testament presents him. He is the Word. He is the one to whom and for whom and through whom all things exist. That's how John begins the Word. But there's more. The Word came into the world. That's John's next idea. This eternal Word, through whom all things were made, entered into human history. That's hinted at there in verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. You see that? But then in verse 14, it's made more explicit. The word became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the word entered the world. Two, two quick questions about this idea. Why did the word enter the world and how? How did the word enter the world? Okay, so first, why? Why did the word enter the world? Why was it seen as important by God to send the word, his own personalized self-expression, to send Jesus, the Son of God, into the world? Well, verses 9 through 13 tell us, and here's what they basically say. The word comes to bring light to the darkness. That's what verse 9 says. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He is the light and the light comes into the darkness. That's why John the Baptist bore witness to him. We see that in verse eight. John wasn't the light, but he came to testify or to bear witness about the light. Why does the word enter the world to bring light? Now that presumes something, doesn't it? 
It presumes that the world is dark. It presumes that the world has a problem. And I think whether we're Christians or not, we would all agree that there's something wrong with the world. There's something wrong with our own lives. And what the scriptures say, what Christianity teaches, is that the world is evil. The world is morally bankrupt. The world is corrupt. The world is lost. And that's proven in the coming of Jesus into the world. That's what he says there in verse 11. Jesus came to his own, his own people, and they did not receive him. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. What John is saying here is this, God made this world. God loves this world. That's what verses 3 and 4 say. But the world has turned away from its maker. People have rejected God. People have sought their own way, even though God loves this world. God cares for this world. God cares for you. God cares for me. God gives us life. God gives us knowledge. God gives us bodies and spirits and minds. God gives us family and friends. God gives us food to eat, water to drink, and shelters to dwell under. God made us. He made us for fellowship with himself and with one another. But the story of the Bible is that we have turned on this God. We have sought to rule the roost ourselves. We all desire to be in control and to do things our way and to live without regard for any authority or king over us. That's what the Bible means when it uses this very loaded word that you might misunderstand. The word is sin. Sin is a description of our inherent lack of desire to know, relate, and care for God. Even though he knows, relates, and cares for us. So the world is full of darkness because we have rebelled against our maker. But God entered the world to push back and eliminate the darkness. That's why he came. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But to our second question, how? How did the word enter the world? Look there again, verse 14. The word, theologically we would say the second person of the Trinity, entered the world by becoming a man. The word became flesh. The word became the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth. Christians call this the incarnation. We just celebrated this at Christmas, right? And John here is telling us that God, the Word, became something that he was not previously. He already existed. We've seen that. He was God's own agent in creation, but now he becomes a human being. The Word retains all of his godness, all of his divinity, but he takes on himself humanity. He becomes exactly like us in every way except without sin, without this inherent desire to rebel against God. The great church father Augustine put it this way, Christ added to himself that which he was not yet did not lose that which he was. So he doesn't stop being God in the incarnation, but he also becomes 
man. He is both God and man in one person, the historical man, Jesus of Nazareth. So the word takes on flesh in verse 14. He dwelt among us. That's a super powerful and super important verb, dwelt among us. That word literally can be translated tabernacled. And it refers back, again, remember, Jews reading this would have gotten it. It refers back to the Old Testament story of the Exodus. Remember that, if you're familiar with that story? After God brought the people out of the land of Egypt, they wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And yet God makes his presence with his people known by dwelling with them in this sort of ramshackle tent that they would build when they stopped and made camp. And then when they moved forward, they would take it back down again and travel with it. And this tent is called the tabernacle. And God's presence, we see at the very end of Exodus, Exodus 40, God's presence dwells there with his people. The glory of God comes down into the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. And now God is saying to us that his ultimate presence, his ultimate glory, the personification of God, God himself has come to tabernacle with us, not in a ramshackle tent, not in a temple, not in any physical location or structure, but in a person. Which is why John, the very next thing he says is, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So how did God enter the world through the word? By becoming humanity, he takes up residence on earth in the word made flesh. God puts on humanity like we put on clothes in the morning. He dons humanity and becomes one of us. Now, these are heady theological waters, but, but I want to pause for a second and just say this. This is an important piece of application among other things we could say. But here's what you need to hear this morning. The incarnation is the greatest example of how God's essential movement is movement towards us with forgiveness and not movement away from us in rejection. Think about this with me. Um, Can I ask you something? When someone does something or says something horrible to you, or when someone treats you terribly, or speaks to you very unkindly, what's our natural reaction? To move away, right? We don't want to be around someone who treats us like that. We want to get away from them as fast as possible. Our natural movement towards those with whom we have enmity and conflict and issues is to retreat unless we're an attacker and then we attack, you know, with our emotional machine guns. But God is not like that. That's what the incarnation teaches God does not treat people who have rejected him by moving away. God, rather, sees that we have made darkness of his world. God sees that we reject him. God sees that we harm each other and that we harm his own heart and his creation. God sees that we ignore him. God sees that Oftentimes, whether we say it or not, we are functional atheists. We live as if God isn't real and has no authority over our lives. God sees all of that and he moves towards us. God sees all of that. He sees the darkness. He sees the sin. He sees the brokenness. He sees the ruin of his creation. And what does he do? Does he separate himself from us? 
Does he end the relationship? Does he blow things up and start all over? No. God comes for us. God pursues us. God enters the darkness himself and brings light. Listen to what Athanasius, another church father, writes. The Lord did not come to make a display. He came to heal and to teach suffering men. For him who came to heal and to teach the way was not merely to dwell here, but to put himself at the disposal of those who needed him. You know what Athanasius is saying here? God, in the incarnation, gets involved in our mess. (laughs) He came to give himself up, to put himself at our disposal in his life and death and burial. He came to heal us. It's hard to get involved in other people's messes. I mean, if we're being... Okay, let me just speak for myself. If I'm being honest, oftentimes, and I think this is probably true of most of us, when we hear something bad happening in a life of someone else or when our family struggling with extended family struggling with some issue, sometimes our initial response is, oh my gosh, I do not have time for that. I don't have time to get involved in your mess. We see that in our own lives and we see that all over the place. I, I have this vivid memory of when I was a child. I was maybe eight or nine years old and I was with my family in the mall back when people went to the mall. And uh, this was pre-Amazon, right? And we were in the mall and we were shopping around and we were walking through the food court and there was this big crowd of people that we saw and we didn't know what was going on. And it turns out that there was this little boy in the middle of this crowd who was choking. He was choking on a piece of food that was lodged in his throat. And everyone, probably three dozen people, were just standing around watching And probably they're kind of in shock, shell-shocked. But the way I remember it is that these people were like, this is terrible. I don't want to jump into this. And and my dad, to his credit, jumped in and did the best he could and heimlicked the kid and boom, the piece of chicken from Chick-fil-A or whatever it was shot out and the boy was okay. And that, that has stuck with me ever since then because it's an example of how sometimes all of us are. We don't want to get involved in other people's issues It doesn't have to be nearly that dramatic. It can be much less significant, but we know that when we get involved in people's messes, it's going to cost us money, it's going to cost us time, it's going to cost us emotional energy. But God is not like that. God came into the world to get involved. He came into the world to renew it, to renew you. Jesus came to show that God is like that and has done that. The Word came into the world. Thirdly, the word entered the world to make God known. So the eternal word entered the world in the incarnation. Why? Well, we looked at that briefly above, right? To cast away the darkness, to get involved. But John's sort of bigger overarching point is that the word entered the world to make God known. That's what that light metaphor is getting at. When you read light in the Bible as an image, not just the Bible, but most any literature, it's a metaphor or an image that's communicating to us illumination. Light reveals, light illuminates. When you're in a strange room or when you're sleeping in a hotel and you have to get up in the middle of the night, maybe because you need to go to the bathroom or you wake up or some other reason, you don't know where you are and most likely you're going to run into the bed or trip over something because you're in the darkness. You can't see. You need light 
to help show you where to go and where you are. And that's why Jesus came. He came into the world to show us, to show us what is true about God, to show us what the real God is like, to make him known. Jesus came into the world to show that God does not keep himself hidden from us. God does not play hide-and-seek with us and tease us even when we feel like that's what he's doing. God has made his character and his person known to us, rather, in Jesus, in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the exegesis of God. Jesus is the interpretation of God. Jesus is the display of God's character and glory. That's what verse 18 means. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. However, he has, in Jesus, made him known. Jesus entered the world to make God known. So what does he make known about God? Let's wrap up with this idea. There's so many things we can say here, and we're going to look at this in more detail as we move through John. But we can summarize what he's saying in the prologue is this. What Jesus shows us about God is that God brings his people back home by his grace. Look at verse 12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, what? Children. Children of God, to enter God's family, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then verse 16. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. What this is saying is that we were all made to be at home with God. We were all made to dwell with God, but we have been cast out of our home with God because of sin. We all have that longing still, however, because we're still made in his image. And because ultimately we were all made for God and our hearts are restless until they rest in him, Jesus came. And the good news is that God wants to bring us home. He wants us for his children. That's what Jesus shows. That's what he makes known about God, that God has the heart of a longing father. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to help us to see that God is our father and to make us again his children. And the good news, the thing that's so wonderful is that God does this. Listen, God does this even though we do not deserve it. God brings us back into his family, even though we don't deserve to be allowed back in the house of God, we deserve to be kicked out. Sin is virtually telling God, we wish he didn't exist. I don't want you for my father. Our rebellion is is a cosmic act of treason against God. I still remember one of my seminary professors using this illustration of what we do when we rebel or sin against God. Imagine your grandfather, or you're watching your grandfather holding a little infant child, a baby, six-month-old, eight-month-old child on his knees and bouncing him up and down. If the grandfather were to drop that child, the child's going to fall and hit his head. It's not going to go well. But as the grandfather lovingly smiles at this child and Sustains the child from falling by holding him in his arms. The child is slapping the grandfather across his face and spitting at him and screaming bloody murder. Get away from me. That's exactly what we do with God when we're sinning. He's sustaining our lives. He's protecting us from falling. And yet we are saying, we want nothing to do with you. Those are the people that God brings back home and makes his children through adoption. God, you see, gives 
grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us favor that we can't earn. And that's why John says that this is good news, because God is really like that. Jesus came to make that kind of God known. The Word entered the world to show us that God is a Father who brings us back to Himself, not because we can earn it or because we deserve it, but because He is gracious, loving, merciful, and compassionate to His wandering, straying people. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the Word? That he's come into the world to rescue us from the darkness, to show us that God really is a God who wants to bring us home, who comes after us in grace. The way back home is to believe that message, to trust it. That's what John says to those who believed in his name, he gave rights to become children of God. And that by believing we may have life. Bono got it. Christianity comes down to what you believe about Jesus. And John here summons each one of us to believe. God summons us to believe in his name. That is, to trust his full revelation of himself to be true. To trust that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he came to do in his life, death, burial, and resurrection to pay for our rebellion. We are Sinners in the dark who have turned from God, but God has answered through pursuing us in Jesus and making a way home. That's what John wrote because it transformed his life. That's what John calls us to believe because it will transform your life. The way back home is through trusting that Christ the Word has come and that he has made God known to be a God who is gracious and loving. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, let's pray.